All right, we're back to a series today on kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, as we've seen it in the Gospel of Matthew. And we have taken a break from this for a few weeks for some special services, like profession of faith and a youth service. So it has been a few weeks since I've been in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at these parables that teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. But I have said all along what our definition of a parable is. And I'm not putting that on the screen today because we should know it by now, right? Parable. Two things they've talked about as being, this is what we see in a parable that Jesus tells. First of all, it is a story that conveys a kingdom idea. Got that? And secondly, it is something that calls for a response. Yep, those two things we've been looking at in these stories, these parables of Jesus, always looking for what's the kingdom idea that's at play here, and what's the response? Jesus tells these stories because he means for us to respond in some way when he tells us. So that's what we look at when we look at these stories, these kingdom ideas and a response that goes there. Today we're moving into Matthew 20, and it's a story that has something to do with equality, or maybe, depending on your perspective or your point of view, inequality. That there's something equal and yet unequal that goes on in this. Now, that's a subject that maybe as we think about it, we think we've got some things figured out, but... I would say in our world, the world that we live in, equality is a moving target. It's always changing. Maybe we don't think of it that way. But consider, consider a thousand years ago. So go back a thousand years and it would be sort of the, the medieval times in Europe where you had kings and nobles and then peasants and people that were separated into different classes and the noble aristocracy that lived as the rulers well you were just born to that because it was in your bloodline your family line and those who were not those who were the peasants you could never ascend to that place of being a ruler because that's not your family and they a thousand years ago would have considered that fair that's what equality meant to them even though we don't think that way now, do we? Or take it back even not so long ago as a thousand years. The Declaration of Independence that we have for this country, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence starts with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. There it is, the word, equality. But what did the authors of that document have in mind when they said and wrote down, all men are created equal? Well, they meant, quite literally, men, just men, not women. And they quite literally meant certain men, men of Western European descent, because the Native American men were not equal or those of African descent at that time were not equal, or those of Asian descent at that time were not equal. That's what they had in mind when they wrote that, but we who still have that document as a part of our nation, we look at that differently now, don't we? Here's what I'm saying. To us, equality is a moving target. Different generations in different times have understood what it means to be equal 
in different ways. And if you're a student of history at all, then you would say, whatever it is we understand as equality now in our day will definitely change somewhere down the line. History shows us that as it progresses. So how do we tackle this idea of equality then when we see it in Scripture? Understanding that the moment we live in seems to define it a certain way, a way that has not been defined that way in the past and will probably not be defined that way in the future. But God thinks of it in ways that are eternal. So what's the eternal feature of equality that we see? We're going to see something of that today that challenges our idea of what it means to be equal as we see it coming from Scripture. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 20 where we find this story then, story of workers in the vineyard. Before I read that, let's pray together. God, so we open your word today. We understand that these are your words for our lives. And so we pray that as we read these, we see this, we hear this, that it may be your words spoken to us through your spirit. Help us to apply the meaning of this to our lives so that we may live in response to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, which is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It'll be here on the screen, and it's in your bulletins as well. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. And you gave them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? 
So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Something about equality here then in this story. A parable that shows how God thinks of equality in ways that maybe seem unequal to us, unfair to us in many ways. Now, this story has a context in Matthew's gospel that the line that ended this story about the last being first and the first being last is is an echo that comes from chapter 19. So if you had a Bible open, maybe you saw that. That the very last line in Matthew 19 is that same line, but in reverse. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So, So there's a story of context around this. What happens in Matthew 19 is this, that there's a very wealthy young man, a ruler, who comes to Jesus, someone who's followed all the rules his entire life, and he says, Lord, Master, what do I need to inherit the kingdom of eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, all these things that are listed in the Old Testament. He says, I have done my best and I've kept those commandments. I have followed the law. And Jesus says, there's one other thing. Sell all you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the story goes that the man goes away sad because of his great wealth that he cannot bring himself to let go of. Jesus uses that then as an illustration where he ends that story with, and so it is, the first will be last and the last will be first. And that then carries right into this parable that Jesus tells that addresses something about what kingdom equality or inequality looks like for us as we see that and know that and understand that. The story then, of the vineyard is, is a story that, when it starts out, seems normal. Because this would have been a common practice. When the harvest comes in, that a landowner then would have needed help to harvest that in. So that part of the story, as Jesus is telling it, the audience would have taken that in. Yep, that makes sense. I get it. That's what happens. Especially in years where there is perhaps a bumper crop. So there's a lot to harvest. And in years where there might be some kind of a weather event that would require them to bring it in quickly. It has to come in now or it's going to be ruined. That would have been a common practice that all the people who heard this story would have said, sure, I get it, that makes sense. And I suppose it wouldn't even be uncommon if the work starts and, okay, maybe there's a storm coming and I see it and we got to get this going, I got to hire a few more. That part they would have said, all right, Maybe occasionally that would happen. But the extent that this landowner goes to would have been odd. How many times during the day he goes back to the marketplace and brings in more workers, especially late in the day, five in the afternoon, one hour left. Now that point, at that point in the story, the audience would have been scratching their heads. What is this guy doing? That's not how typically a harvest would go that you bring in workers that late in the day. So that would have been odd to them. Then the next thing that would have been odd, perhaps even more odd to them, but maybe floats right by us, but it's intentionally mentioned in this story. 
when the day is done and the foreman gathers them all in and the owner gives instructions. I want you to give everyone their pay, but start with the last ones. That would have been odd. Odd to the point of the workers who had been there all day would have been insulted. That's insulting that they get paid first because the culture would have been that those who are first should be first. Maybe we don't always think of it that way. I mean, think of, uh, for example, Olympics. When, when we have an Olympic event and, you know, you get gold, silver, and bronze medal, and when the medals are awarded, I mean, it seems to go in reverse order, doesn't it? Right? That the, the gold medal, the first place one gets honored last. You save the best for last. That's maybe something that's more current to our time. It would not have happened that way back then. Those who were first had priority to be the first. So that detail in the story jumps out in ways that maybe just fly right past us. But Matthew calls attention to it, specifically names it. Take the ones who should be last and make them first. Bring them to the front of the line. So he does. Now at this point, Maybe we have to use a little bit of imagination. So let's imagine into the story. Imagine that we are some of the people who had worked all day. Okay, just imagine that. I put in a full day's work and now, first of all, I'm insulted. I'm insulted because, hey, we're supposed to be paid first because we've been here the longest. We were first. So first I'm insulted. Then what happens next? You start seeing what these one-hour people get paid. They're getting a whole day's pay. Matthew gives some allusion to this in the story, right? Now, the workers expected something more because they see what's going on. So, first I'm insulted. Now, maybe I'm a little bit excited. Hey, I wonder what's coming our way because look what they got. And we put it a whole day. So what's coming to us? And then in the roller coaster of up and down and up and down, we get to finally our turn, and there it is. Same thing. The denarius. Uh, A denarius in that time was what they called one day's wages. So considering a full day of work, you get one denarius. And these people who came in and only worked one hour at the end of the day, they got the whole day's worth of wages. And then the rest who'd been there all day, same thing, one day's wage. You'll notice if you look at the story, look at the detail, that uh, the only time that the landowner promises the amount of pay was to the first ones. That when he goes and he hires the people first thing in the morning, those are the ones he says, and I will pay you a denarius. I will pay you a day's worth of wages for doing a day's worth of work. The ones hired after that, he doesn't say what he'll pay them. What does it say in the text? He says, I will pay you whatever seems right. Kind of leaves that detail fudged a little bit, right? So, for those who had worked all day, actually what you received, you received exactly what was promised. Nothing was taken away. You did what you agreed to do. And you got what you agreed to receive. And yet, they grumble. 
right? Even though they did what they were expected to do and got what they were expected to receive, they still grumble. Why? Because it isn't fair. Or so it seems to them, right? It's not fair. Not fair that those who only come at one hour at the end should get the same thing as us who've been here all day long working. That's not how equality is supposed to work. Equality in our mind is supposed to be that the amount of pay should be equal to the amount of work. So the work I put in is what determines the pay that I received. But the owner of the vineyard seems to have a different standard of equality that's working here, doesn't he? That he's working with something different that shows us a little something different. It's not the only time that Jesus has used a story like this in some ways. Uh, We don't find it in Matthew's gospel, but if you were to flip over to Luke's gospel, you find a story that in older translations of the Bible is called the prodigal son. Maybe in our more modern translations, it's called the lost son. I don't know why it's given that title because the prodigal son is not the main character in the story. This is the son who wants his inheritance early and then he takes it and he goes to a faraway place and he squanders it all. And then he has to come crawling back to his father seeking forgiveness. But the father who's there is already waiting and watching for his son to return. And it's already before the son even has, before he even says a word of being sorry, the father already forgives and already says, welcome back. I'll take you back in. But the father's not the main character in the story either. Who's the main character in the story of the prodigal son? It's the other brother. That's the main character. Uh, Because the audience of the story uh, in Luke's gospel are the Pharisees. The ones who've been faithful the whole time. The ones who've been keeping all the rules. The ones who never did anything wrong, never messed up, never rebelled. And so this older son who's out working in the field, he hears the party going on at the house and he says, what's going on? Your brother's come back and your father is throwing a party. So what does he do? Does he come running in? Yes, my brother's back. No, he doesn't. He refuses to go. Well, I'm not going that. I'm not going to be a part of that because it's not fair. It's not fair that I've done everything right, that I followed all the rules, and that he gets not just the same thing, but it looks like he got moved to the front. Now I'm last and he's front. That's not fair. Different story, same message. That has something to do with what we think of as being fair and equal, but God is telling us a little something different, isn't he? There's a kingdom idea in this. That's what we've been looking for in all these parables, right? What's the kingdom idea? What is Jesus telling us a feature about the kingdom of heaven that comes through this story? 
I think the kingdom idea would go something like this, that the kingdom of heaven is a place in which grace is generous to all. To all who come seeking Jesus. To all who come to God in faith. Grace is generous. The same way. It comes to all of them in the same way. And why is that? Well, it's because grace is not based on anything that I do, anything that you do. It's not our work in the vineyard that produces it. But it's the work that Christ has done on our behalf. That Christ has done something that we could never do. That he was the one who actually went in and did the work that was necessary to receive the payment of grace. And we haven't done anything for that. Nothing at all. So when we see God generously pour out his grace upon whomever he chooses... It's not based on anything that we do or come to God with on our own. But it is entirely based on what Christ has done. Because if it was the other way around, if if it had to do with the work that I did, right? The day in the vineyard that I put in, what's the wage for that? Paul talks about that in Romans. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. So you want to talk fair, all right? You want to talk equal? You want to use our standard of fair and our standard of equal? You know what your paycheck is then? Zero. Zero. Every time for every person. That's where our fairness leads us. That's where our equality lands us. Nothing. Paul, of course, gives the second half of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you get the full paycheck. You get it all. You get everything. But it had absolutely nothing to do with what you did, with the work you've done. Nothing at all. It's all because of Jesus. So, of course, God has the right to give his gift of grace however he chooses to do. So for those who were born into homes where you heard the gospel message from a very young age and you've always been brought up to believe it and know it and you've always tried to live within the standard of becoming holy in that process of sanctification, the way that the Holy Spirit works through us. For those who've done that your entire lives, that gift of grace is there for you. For those who maybe have been searching for many years of your lives and not knowing, but somewhere along the line, It made sense and you woke up to it. And so later in life, you come to understand the gospel and receive Jesus in faith. Same gift of grace is there for you. For those who have rebelled, and I mean rebelled, 
done everything they can to live as far away from God as possible. But then somewhere, somehow, late in life, near the end, the call of the Holy Spirit sinks in. The same grace is there. Exactly the same. Because it never had anything to do with what we do. But it's all upon what God has already done. So we see that kingdom idea here, right? A kingdom idea that, all right, I think for those of us who have learned our Bible and our doctrine and our theology, I think we know that somewhere inside. We know that, right? We, we know the gospel message. Of course, it's what Jesus has done, and it's not what I do. But what's up with this story then? Because in this story, there's a reaction, and there's a response a response that's called for out of this, isn't it? A response that maybe hits us with a question that we need to consider. Let's go back to the Old Testament and think about this guy named Jonah. You know that story from the Old Testament. Jonah, God goes to Jonah and and says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh. This was a city far away to the north and to the east of Israel, a city where they hated those people. They were pagans. They were the ones who were causing trouble for the Israelites, for God's people. Jonah says, not going to do it. Goes the other way, but God, of course, in that story, turns Jonah around, and now Jonah doesn't have a choice. Fine, I'll go. And he goes. He goes to Nineveh, and what does Jonah do when he gets to Nineveh? It's a large city. Tells him, it takes him three days to go through it. So three days he goes through the city. And what's the message that Jonah gives? Jonah preaches one thing. Forty days and you all die. That's his message. It's not, you know what, if you repent, you can have new life in God. Nope, that's not the message because that's not what Jonah wants. Jonah wants to see them all die. So he goes, 40 days, and you get it. It's coming to you. And then Jonah, you know, if you follow the story, he goes outside the city and he sits and he waits. He wants to see it. I want to see these people destroyed. But it doesn't happen. The people repent. God forgives them. Then in Jonah chapter 4, the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah has an argument with God. An argument with God of, in which Jonah lays it out. God, I knew this would happen. I knew this from the moment you first told me to go and preach here. I knew this is what would happen because, and this is what Jonah says, I knew that you are a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that about you and I knew this was exactly what you were going to do. Forgive these people. Give them a second chance. Never mind Jonah himself. Got a pretty big second chance of his own. Never mind that. Yeah, I'll take the second chance, okay? But not them. Don't give them a second chance. Jonah is so angry, he says to God, I'm angry enough that I could die. I don't even want to live anymore. That's how angry Jonah is because 
same grace that came to Jonah also came to someone else. And it wasn't fair, or so Jonah thinks. So there is a response somewhere in here, right? Maybe we need to react to this story in a way that has us ask a hard question. Who are the people I think do not deserve God's grace? Who are the people I think do not deserve God's grace? And maybe we've all got some thinking to do on that. Because there are people like that in our world. People. Jonah is angry because God loves with a passion the people that Jonah hates with a passion. Are there people in our world that we just hate? Short of loving, but further than that, the thought of them receiving the same eternal life and gift that we receive just cringes at us. The thought of someday being in the, new, the newly recreated heaven and earth where we all have our glorious resurrected bodies and I look over and, wait, you're here? You got it? You got in? The thought of that. I think that's what Jesus means to put front and center in this story for us to deal with. Not so much the, I mean, the appreciation of, yes, we've been given the grace. Yes, we know that. But further than that, our response of, and who else gets the grace? Especially when it's someone that I think shouldn't deserve it, shouldn't receive it, shouldn't be included, shouldn't be a part of it. Who are the ones that maybe, all right, hate's a strong word. Let's take it to the words of the story itself. Grumble, right? Is there any grumbling of, ugh, what are we doing with them? Or how did they get to be a part of who we are? You know, I'm, I mean, I'd have no trouble if uh, they figured out how to put in the right day's work like we do. I mean, then they can join us. Right? I, I've got no problem if, if they figure out how to sort of do things like we do it. Work the day in the vineyard like we work it. Then it's all good. But when people come in to receive God's mercy and his forgiveness and they haven't done it like we've done it. They don't look like we look. Then what? Do we grumble? So who are those people? Who are the ones that in our world that we may have the hardest time accepting and receiving that way? Because there is a response here, right? A response. And it, it has to do with taking it back to the lines. I mean, the line that at the very end of Matthew 19 sets up this story and the very last line that Jesus gives in this parable, it has to do with making room in the front. 
So if I'm going to give a response, what it means is I've got to look around in my life, and I've got to look around in my life for the people that, for my own reasons, whatever those reasons are, I've tried to keep them pushed to the back. Who are those people? The ones that I've said, you know what? I'll let you come to the front if you do things like us. But otherwise, you just stay in the back somewhere. Who are those people? And then what does it take then to make room at the front of the line for them? That I in my life can find ways to say, I'm not going to push you to the back anymore, but you know what? Instead, come to the front. Here's a place right in the front. A place right in the front where you get the exact same thing from God that I get. Same grace and forgiveness and mercy is there for you as there is for me. Come to the front and get it. How am I going to do that? Create that space to do that. Because, Because God makes room at the front for people who feel they shouldn't belong at all. I also should make room in my life for people who need to know they belong. Because God makes room at the front for people who feel like they shouldn't be there at all. I need to make room in my life for people who need to know that they belong. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your word and how you instruct us in that. Lord, thanks for the story here that shows us how amazing your grace is and how we receive that. God, we're sorry for the times when we fall into thinking it's about us and what we've done. And God, we're sorry for the times when, yes, we've actually even pushed people others to the back maybe not intentionally or meaning to but we live with a standard of fairness that sometimes pushes others away so God remind us again that the grace we have from you is based entirely upon Jesus and that it is free for all who come to you in faith And Lord, help us to see in our world those we've been pushing aside and instead bring them to the front. Lord, help us to do this so that your amazing grace can shine through us in all the more amazing ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus.